You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to the latest episode of Security Unlocked. Uh, Welcome back to Civilization, Nick. I'm hearing that Seattle had a pretty bad windstorm. Glad you're okay. Thank you. Yes, we did. We were out of power and internet for best part of two days. That was that was fun. <laughs> but we yes, we're we're back online. We have power. We have internet. We're back in the twenty first century. How about you, Natalia? Any insane weather events up in the northeast? You guys get ice storms and cats and dogs and locusts falling from the sky, don't you? None this weekend, though. I did almost freeze going camping, and I had a, a what? close call with uh, an attack over the weekend. Oh my gosh, that sounds crazy. <laughs> what happened? I mean, it happened in Outward. I feel like I probably should have started with that, but Outward, the game. Oh, okay. Phew. I feel like you would have mentioned that to me in advance (laughs) of recording this podcast had you actually been attacked in real life. Yeah. What's this game? What's the game you're playing? It's an RPG game where you try to quest through this... Gosh, I don't remember a single name of any of the locations, the cities or the mountains. I'm not paying attention. I'm really focused on on the battles that you have to fight. What are you battling? Can you give something away or is it or is it a spoiler? Like is it humans, is it animals, is it zombies, is it aliens? It's a mix. There are bandit camps and then there are Ooh. troglodyte caves. I think I've taken on a whole lot of the troglodytes at this point though. So I don't know if they're if they're still in existence. Let's take 30 seconds to look up outward. You said troglodyte, and I really feel like troglodyte is an established word that means something. Oh, okay. So troglodyte is from the Greek troglodyte, which literally means cave goers. Is that right? Do they live in caves? They do live in caves. Oh, well, there you go. Well, this game must have done its research. They are cave goers, but they're also your enemy. Is that right? Yes, but I guess in theory, I brought it upon myself. I mean, I kind of wanted to loot the cave, so. So you actually went into their territory and were like, I'm going to smash this jar and get this green gem, this green jewel out of it. And they were like, hey. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a moral gray area because, I mean, they saw me and immediately attacked, but it was their cave. So you're the bad guy. Nice. <laughs> all right, we're going to play this. We're going to play Outward. wonder if we can get all of the Security Unlocked peeps into a single game, that'd be fun. Oh yes, and I think with that we can we can intro our guests. There, yeah, there's there's no connection point here. <laughs> Speaking of looting, cave, looting, how you no, stop these looting are from happening? Oh, oh, I got it, I got it. If only those troglodytes had better security, oh. people like Natalia Godilla wouldn't just come wandering in to ransack the place looking for leather and <laughs> iron ore to craft rudimentary weapons. 
Speaking of better security, <laughs> today on Security Unlocked, we talk with Nazma Saqib, who is going to spend a bit of time talking to us about firmware and the challenges associated with ensuring firmware integrity and the integrity of device security all up, starting with firmware. This is going to be the first of three conversations that we'll have over a number of episodes where we better understand the security of devices from the firmware up. And then after that segment, Natalia, who do we speak with? After that, we speak with Bafna Soman, who is a senior security research lead at Microsoft, and she shares how she got into security, which was really a role that she played in her family. She was the de facto support for network and security issues like antivirus. And as she continued in that role, she got more and more curious and tried to understand what technicians were changing or why something might be affecting her computer. And that role and responsibility just made her that much more interested in the security space and eventually led her here to Microsoft, where she works on understanding and gaining insights from the data that we have in order to better inform our Defender products. On to the podcast. On to the pod. Welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast, Nazma Saqib, or Saqib, as we'll call you in this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Natalia, for uh, having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. So two things. Uh, we love to start up these deep dives with you know, an introduction. Would you mind explaining, I introduced you as Nazma Saqib, which is your name. We're going to call you Saqib. Just if anything you want to sort of say about that, but also what do you do at Microsoft? Tell us about your role, the team you're in, that the team's mission. What is your day-to-day like? So yeah, I'm Nasma Saqib. I go by Saqib. It's usually uh, a sign uh, on the team that you've met me, where I get to, to clarify that growing up, everyone just called me by my last name. I'm originally from Bangladesh, and Saqib is just more common as a as a first name uh, in Bangladesh, which is what most people in my family ended up calling me. There's a famous cricketer by the name of Saqib Hassan, who some listeners may be familiar with, but um, this is my first foray into I am fame. familiar with uh, famous Bangladeshi cricketers. Thank you very much. He's, uh, <laughs> he's finally back after uh, an unfortunate ban, but I think it's, uh, it's great to have him back on the team. Super excited for the prospects of, uh, of the Tigers. Do you play cricket? I'm just gonna, we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to take the, the little path here. Yeah, we, I think we let's uh, go down fully on that rabbit hole. So I played a lot when I was younger. I've uh, been in America mostly since 2008 uh, is when I first came for college. But prior to that, like most, I think, kids in, in Bangladesh, we'd play cricket. And usually it's, I grew up in Dhaka, which is the capital. So it was all improvised. For the longest time, we had like a little space on on our roof. So it was like this, you know, flat essentially and so it was probably about like maybe 10 feet by 10 feet or not even and so me and my cousins you know be a team of like two or three kids and we'd split it up like someone would bat someone would bowl you'd make up the rules in terms of how you know the runs would work and you know same thing with if you found a little space in a back alley or in any small sort of field or space that you could get, you'd find a way to make it a cricket field. So uh, good memories from uh, from back there. So it was kind of informal, but uh, a lot of fun, especially now that uh, uh, the years have sort of gone on and um, I'm in a much different place where, you know, you just don't do that. It's uh, pretty, pretty cool memories. 
Bring us back to your role here at Microsoft and sort of what you do. Is there? Can we think of a, a good cricketing segue? Is there a uh, any any famous cricketers that have moved into the cybersecurity field? What's uh, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> or maybe we just take I mean, a hard left turn. I think uh, Satya uh, is obviously oh, yes. um, Satya loves cricket. He's a big Satya cricket loves cricket. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, he's the the most famous former cricketer turned tech. <laughs> tech luminary uh, that I can think of. But, 10 points uh, for the connection there. So yes, there <laughs> it is a, a well-worn path, uh, cricket to Microsoft. <laughs> and I'm just one more uh, traveler on that road. But uh, on my day-to-day, I've been at Microsoft for a little over eight years now, actually right out of college. I work as a PM in one of the many security teams at Microsoft. My team currently is in the Azure Edge and Platform team. Our team is responsible for the operating systems that we ship as part of Microsoft and also that uh, operating systems that our customers use on platforms like Azure. So our team has been responsible for building the security that goes into Windows um, for a long time. I've been a part of that team since I started at Microsoft. And then with the way to serve our customers on Azure, you know, we want to meet them where they're at. And we have a lot of Linux customers on Azure as well. And so increasingly, our team is, is not just doing Windows work. We're also uh, investing in Linux security technologies to help ensure that, you know, if you're a customer coming into Microsoft, if you're using Azure, whether it's on Windows or Linux, really bringing that uh, platform, that operating systems expertise to help secure um, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to do. Awesome. Thank you. I'm really excited for this conversation we're about to have. It's going to be one of sort of three, I won't call them introductory, but it's certainly a little a little trinity of conversations over the next few months where we're going to talk about firmware. We're going to talk about firmware integrity, uh, the challenges of that and, and how you go about uh, ensuring and securing firmware integrity. We're going to follow that up uh, in a future episode talking about the uh, Microsoft Pluton announcement. I'm sure that'll come up at some point during our conversation today. You're joining us today, um, Saqib, to help us sort of come back to basics a little bit. Can you help orient us in this world of BIOS, UEFI, firmware, all the various sort of synonyms for this stuff? What We're going to talk about firmware. Let's talk about what is firmware. Let's talk about these acronyms, if, if you would, to sort of uh, re-educate us um, so we can, we can sort of start the conversation. Right. So the easy way to think about firmware is... It's the first piece of code that runs on uh, your hardware, right? So it's easy to, to sort of visualize that, you know, when you have a device, it's a desktop or a PC or a phone, any any kind of computing device, you have the actual hardware, right? You know, you've got the, the CPU, the motherboard, you know, the power button that you use to turn the whole thing on. You have the hardware. The firmware is really the essentially software that's typically baked into the hardware. So it ships typically as part of the hardware. There's usually some read-only memory chip that's dedicated to storing that firmware, just so that you know when a customer hits the power on button, right? The hardware knows how to turn everything on essentially. And it knows how to, it's the firmware, that piece of software that actually goes and coordinates how devices are being made available to all the other things that run after the firmware, which is the operating system and then the applications that you use on top of the OS. So if you were to think about, you know, from the point that you turn on a device to the point where you're using an application, whether it's your browser, whether it's 
Teams or Zoom because it's COVID. Um, you know, usually a very simple workflow for that is you know you turn on the hardware. The firmware is the first piece of software that runs on the hardware platform. It bootstraps uh, the operating system, so that could be Windows, it could be Linux, and then. After that, once you have the operating system running, you can run applications like your browser, Teams, Zoom on top of that operating system platform. And then, so the second part of your question, what is BIOS or UFI? They're essentially flavors of, of firmware. BIOS is, is, uh, has been around for the longest time. I think in many ways with the history of the IBM PC, the BIOS was um, what you'd call essentially the, the firmware that ran on an IBM PC platform. A few years ago now, I think, uh, essentially the industry got together to revamp the firmware standards. So it's both a specification and an implementation of that specification. So Eufy, you can sort of think about it as the modern BIOS, but because of historically, you know, uh, uh, people called firmware BIOS the longest time, they're, they're almost essentially synonyms, but um, typically BIOS and UFI both refer to uh, the firmware that runs on any particular platform. And in general, they're perhaps used synonymously, um, if we're uh, speaking loosely, but most modern systems today use some implementation of the UFI specification as the platform firmware. Can you provide some security context around firmware? What does the threat landscape look like for BIOS um, or the, the broader term firmware? What's been the history of attacks? What's more or less prevalent for firmware as compared to applications that are at risk? Right, right. So much work has gone into so many different parts of the technology stack, right? You think about the work that we've done at Microsoft and across the industry around things like antivirus solutions. You look at modern platforms like Microsoft's ATP, Advanced Threat Protection, where you have just a view of the health of your operating system across many devices that's you know customized for, for your enterprise. All of those things in many ways have already made it harder and are increasingly made it, making it harder for attackers to do things that they would have maybe gotten away with in the past for attacks in the operating system. And so naturally, when you make one thing harder, you incentivize attackers to, to go elsewhere, right? And so what we saw as a trend in one of the places that where this was really sort of evident to us in a way that felt it wasn't just us looking at it, it was also externally reported is if you look at the national the NIST, which is the American standards body, essentially, the National Institutes of Standards and Technologies, I think I'll have to go verify that, but um, they actually maintain the National Vulnerability Database. So if you think about vulnerabilities that get reported, you know, you see in the news and they often have some number associated with it. That's actually all the numbers in the National Vulnerability Database. And so one of the things that's that you saw in the research that's being done in the industry, right? Like this is where all the security researchers report issues. You know, it's like the aggregate. This is how the industry keeps track of all the vulnerabilities that are happening across all technologies. There was a, a, a large spike in firmware. If you just go to the, the NIST website and you go type in firmware, it went from a handful of firmware vulnerabilities being reported in, I think, 2016, 2017, to hundreds being reported in the last year or two. And it's a, a huge spike beyond exponential. 
and that really is because we're making it harder to, to do the things that perhaps attackers would be able to do in the past in the operating system. And so, you know, people are naturally moving elsewhere. And so they're gravitating towards firmware as an avenue. So that's one reason. The other reason is coming back to uh, what I was uh, talking about in terms of how a platform boots. Firmware, because it's the first thing that runs on your hardware, because it needs to, just by its very nature, set up your hardware in the right configurations, it actually bootstraps a lot of the security on your system, right? And so it's almost like a double whammy. You know, attackers are are moving to a place where a lot of the problems that have been solved in the operating system from a security perspective, they're trying to work around those protections. And then in firmware, they actually see that you have this highly privileged environment. Firmware typically has almost, usually when it starts up, almost unrestricted access to all the hardware and, and the, you know, the data that's on your hardware. And so that's really where we're seeing this, this trend where attackers are, the security research is suggesting that attackers are going to be moving there. And one very recent practical example of a threat where you know the, these trends are bearing out is um, just, I think, last week, there was a report that um, TrickBot, which is almost like a modular malware that's being used in a lot of other ransomware attacks, it's actually added firmware capabilities. So it's using other longstanding, well-known vulnerabilities um, in the operating system. But because of the trends I've just described, we're seeing TrickBot add new firmware attack capabilities as well. So Keith, do we know when firmware attacks began? Is there a defining moment in time when firmware became an actual viable target or has it sort of always been there and it's just recently evolved? It's always been there. You know, like, you know, firmware has always run with high privileges in a way that it may be difficult for operating system software, including security tools, to tell what's going on in firmware. Um, It's easy for firmware malware to hide what it's doing. But uh, if, if I were to think of um, a tipping point, if you will, a couple of years ago, we saw that um, at least one example of what's typically associated with a particular uh, nation state threat actor, there were targeted attacks a couple of years ago that uh, were using a firmware vulnerability. So that in some ways, that was a very clear signal that not only is the uh, security research um, headed that way, but um, there's at least, you know, that that first uh, example. Uh, it's almost like the canary in the coal mine, if you will, where uh, we saw an example of an attack that tried to do exactly what I described is um, use for a very targeted attack, use firmware to circumvent um, a lot of the security tools and find a way to persist. And with developments like what I talked about for for TrickBot, um, which is generally often used by uh, many different actors trying to trying to orchestrate different uh, ransomware attacks like Rio and Conti, you know, we expect to see that that trend sort of in, increase. And so, if I were to think about that uh, that first tipping point where attacks started to become real. The uh, the Lojax attack is, I think, um, what it's typically referred to uh, is maybe the, the one I can think of where it really sort of became 
not just a trend we're seeing in the research, but a really practical attack. By its very nature, firmware is complex. You know, there are often, you know, there's tens of thousands or millions of lines of code running. If you think about all the firmware that runs on your system. So if you just think about the basic security principle of trying to reduce your attack surface, trying to have least privileges, where you really want to be able to get to is that your trust is not necessarily fully dependent on all the firmware being, you know, written totally correctly and totally secure and not uh, vulnerable to an attack. Ideally, you want to not trust that huge infrastructure. You want to be able to go do that trust a fewer set of things. Um, and that's sort of the journey that we've been on recently with our OEM partners as well with secured core PCs is to, to do that evolution. You know, UFI Secure Boot doesn't go away. It's still an important technology, but we want to be able to, to start layering on additional capabilities that can start to protect important security properties or security capabilities, even from uh, firmware compromise, as, as that's really where the trends are going from an attacker perspective. So your team has done a lot of great work around secure core PCs. What would it take for an attacker to actually break into one? Is it is it possible? What do they have to overcome? So without um, obviously giving away some operational uh, <laughs> security here, but just like right. in in bizarro fictional land where with infinite commute, compute power and you know what's the and physical access to the device, like what 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 are the right. monumental challenges that would need to be overcome? There are a couple of places that I think are interesting that we're definitely thinking about. Security is not a static thing; it's always dynamic. We do something, and then so do attackers, and so. If you think about, like, it comes back to maybe the foundation analogy. We're building a lot of our security promises on on things like uh, the TPM. You know, we want to be able to securely, measure, you know, record uh, the firmware that's running so that we can actually tell that it's the firmware that we expected, right? So that's an area that, you know, we're thinking hard about, right? And it's part of the motivation for Pluton. Uh, I'll leave it up to to you all to interrogate Peter uh, around <laughs> what the attacks are, but I think you know that's one place where you know a lot of our security promises built around that. We spend a lot of time thinking about TPM attacks, and it's a big part of the motivation for uh, why we're adding another choice to the the Windows ecosystem around using Pluton is just being able to to continue to raise that bar against attackers. So. I'll leave it to uh, to you, Nick and, and Natalia, to to interrogate Peter as to to how Pluton will uh, will help with the security of future Windows systems. We will absolutely do that. So, Sakeep, thank you so much for your time. As always, we will have some notes. Uh, we'll have some links in the uh, follow up show notes. And you know, I, I'm not sure if I've actually offered this to li- listeners before, but you know, if you do have questions about securing firmware, anything that uh, Sakeep talked about, contact us on the Twitters. You can send us an email, securityunlocked at Microsoft.com, and we'll do our best to point you in the right direction. Thank you much, Sakeep. Yeah, no, definitely. Thank you for uh, for having me on here. It's, it was just a great conversation. I enjoyed it, and I second what you just said. You know, we'd love to hear from listeners around you know things that we can you know do a better job of communicating or feedback uh, that folks have on, on how how well we're doing in terms of you know meeting their needs so keep thanks so much for your time mate 
And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Today, we have Bhavna Soman on the episode. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Natalia and Nick. I'm very excited to be here right now. We're excited to have you. So I'd love for our audience to get to know you a little bit more. What is your role at Microsoft? What does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, absolutely. So my official title is Senior Security Research Lead, but like it often happens in big organizations, it kind of doesn't accurately reflect what I do. I lead a team of security researchers and data scientists uh, who use machine learning and AI to fight threats on the Microsoft Defender platform. And that kind of reflects my own background as well, which has been checkered with experience in security research and machine learning. So to me, that's a very good fit, even though I can't get them to include all of it in my title. (laughs) (laughs) Bhavna, we've spoken to uh, a few of your colleagues on the podcast already, uh, Holly Stewart, Jeff McDonald recently, uh, Karen Levy. How would you describe what you do? What is different about your role and your team compared to maybe Jeff's team or or Karen's team, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So the focus for my team is on using AI and ML on building intelligence and context for our enterprise customers. So, you know, when you look at how you want to apply machine learning and data science, I think it all really boils down to how can you reduce the dependency on human beings who have the security expertise? How can you bring in AI to help enterprise customers better defend themselves in this field that has a scarcity of talent, to be honest? And so what they do is look for clean or malware files, whereas my team is focused on providing, you know, for example, information about emerging campaigns or information about what are the attacks that are linked to each other and form one incident so that an organization can address them together as a whole and therefore get efficiencies from their analysts as well. So these are just a couple of examples of what I mean when I say like we provide the intelligence. So I think someone put it very um, succinctly like a few weeks ago where Jeff's team finds the badness, Karen's team finds the goodness, and I kind of bring it all together and give it meaning. That's awesome. I love that definition. Nailed it. And stepping back for a moment, I'd, I'd love to hear about what brought you to Microsoft and what brought you to security research. As you mentioned, you had a journey that included machine learning and security research. So, you know, how did how did both of those come into your career path? So I was always excited by security. And even from a very young age, when we had our first laptop, which was like way, way back, I think it either had Windows 95 or 98. So it was really old. And those days you get infected by stuff all the time. So for my family, it used to be my job to kind of, you know, (laughs) figure out exactly where was the registry key in which this, you know, uh, thing had saved its like uh, auto run tactic or persistence tactic. And at that time, I didn't know what any of these were called or anything. But That's how I first got into it. And then I decided that I really loved this sort of adversarial aspect of security. Like it really brings an excitement to the whole thing for me. My path did not take me directly to security still. My undergraduate studies were in mechanical engineering. So thankfully I got a fair bit of math and also programming classes in. But 
I was, you know, <laughs> chasing different things at that time. But after a while of uh, working in that space, I was actually doing pipeline design for this company that constructs oil refineries, which was like a very soul sucking job for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't like it at all. <laughs> I did that for two years after college and it just was not for me. So I was like, okay, I really love computers. I have to go in that direction. So I started to like build software tools for that company. And then, you know, that gave me sort of like this way to dip my toes in. And then I realized that, okay, this is definitely something I love doing. So I decided to go for a master's. And then when I was choosing my area of focus for my master's, I was like, yes, security has to be it. So I went to Georgia Tech to do my master's and I specialized in security. So that gave me a great sort of grounding in all of the basic skills, you know, a great background in the industry. And Atlanta has a very good InfoSec community too. So I had a chance to get plugged into that. Yeah, I, I really loved going there. And after my education there, I worked for this uh, startup out of Georgia Tech, which was which incidentally specialized in using machine learning for network security. So that's where I think I got introduced to, hey, machine learning and artificial intelligence can have something to say about this. The more I stayed in the security industry, like this problem of how it's all a whack-a-mole where, you know, a few people are chasing thousands and millions of different variants of the same attack. It really impressed on me that this, this is not something I can do manually. Like I can reverse... 10, 15 samples, I can't do a thousand. So that's where like the power of AI and machine learning really struck me. So I think that's where I started going deeper and deeper into that. I wanted to come back to something that you touched on about being the family. What did you say? Like when, when the, a virus came on the computer, you would be the one that would be in charge of, of getting it getting it off? Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So like uh, at that time, I think they weren't like super severe viruses. Like they weren't doing human-operated ransomware stuff, for instance. They'd show you annoying pop-ups or they would uh, change your uh, search engine all the time. And they were doing like very annoying things like that. I took on the task of investigating how exactly is this thing coming back, even though I deleted it. And then I started to discover the hidden mode uh, in Windows. And I started to discover all of these registry keys and drag it. Uh, So it was kind of, it kind of went deeper and deeper and deeper from there. Got it. Because these were in the, were these in the days where you could just install as many like toolbars as you wanted inside your browser to the point where you could no longer see a web page? Are we going back that far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was, uh, it was one of those days. Where, and also Google was not really a thing. I remember Yahoo chat rooms used to be the big thing. Alta Vista, baby. Alta Vista. So fun times. There was a simpler world for sure. Bhavna, how long have you been at Microsoft now? It's been three and a half years now. Got it. And and the, the first role that you came into at Microsoft, was that in the team that you're in or was that in a different group? It was still with Microsoft Defender, but I was doing slightly different stuff. I was focused more on just pure security research and not as much on the machine learning and AI aspect. Three and a half years ago, what were you focused on and how has that sort of potentially evolved? You know, how has that changed uh, today? Like, are you still... Were you still focused on the same types of attacks? They've just sort of evolved in sophistication or, or was that a completely different world three and a half years ago? So when I 
first came to Microsoft, I was coming fresh off of Intel. At Intel, my focus had been uh, on threat intelligence. Again, this was back when threat intelligence was just starting to become a thing. So I joined Intel before that. And at that time, they needed a threat intelligence platform where you can gather all of the TI information from all these feeds, you know, internal, external, etc. So I built that first platform, plugging it into all the internal, external data feeds, organizing the data, and then having that pumped into the various uh, prevention and detection systems. So that's what I was doing primarily at Intel. So when I came here at first, I was still in that mindset and I was still trying to like apply intelligence to improve protection. So I was doing a lot of hunting on virus total, kind of trying to find out where our biggest gaps were and trying to plug those. Uh, but very quickly, you know, that pivoted to uh, using machine learning for security was focused on non-PE files. So very heavily focused on the document files that, you know, we very often see come in as email attachments and then they will lead the user to download something actually bad, like, again, an Emotet or a Drydex or something. So I was very focused on those macro files and other non-PE files. JavaScript was a big one at that time. So writing classifiers to differentiate between malicious JavaScript and the benign kind. Those were some of my first projects here. So you you said a couple times that the draw of machine learning for you is the potential for scale, the potential for uh, helping to fill that skills gap. So as you're shifting into roles where machine learning is playing a bigger and bigger part, what are the achievements that you're focused on? What would you like to try to automate better so that humans can shift to other tasks? So there is one problem which is very close to my heart. And that is the problem of the core threat intelligence business. So Microsoft Defender has a really big threat intelligence team. And this was something, you know, I was part of the threat intelligence team at Intel as well. And all through my time with working with these teams, it's been obvious that threat intelligence is very like manually driven right now, right? Like it has to be a human that is like reading, you know, files or, PDFs or white papers, and then this human is again observing traffic data, whether by hunting or through the attacks that they are remediating or something like that. So this human is then kind of assimilating all of these insights that they have about these attackers, and then they put it out somewhere, like maybe they will communicate it to their customers saying, hey, this is what you need to be careful about. They may write a white paper or they may build detections as a result of that. So This is a very human thing. And when I look at artificial intelligence and machine learning, to me, using uh, large amounts of data to extract a few critical insights, to me, this is a very good use case for uh, machine learning and AI. So this is a problem that I have been working on for a really long time. My first attempt at this was while I was at Intel and I did this kind of cross-team project with a team that was in Argentina at that time to work on a method that could use question answering techniques from machine learning to um, answer questions about attackers. So if I have this question about, okay, what is the tool that this attacker uses or what is the victim vertical for this attacker? Can I use question answering techniques and train on the corpus of data available uh, about these attackers and have an AI-based system give an answer? So I've been like attacking this problem for many years. My first attempt with well, while I was at Intel was not very successful. But a couple of years ago, I gave it another shot and 
this research ended up being, uh, I presented this at Black Hat last year, where I was talking about how we can use some new uh, techniques that had come out since then around word embeddings, natural language processing, and domain-specific name identity extraction to do similar stuff. So I think I've been making progress on that problem. And now I'm working uh, on a project with University of California, Berkeley on this uh, security AI RFP, where now they are expanding some of this work into the security knowledge graph, where their aspiration is like even bigger. Yes, we uh, grab all of this data from a variety of different data sources. Yes, we do named entity extraction, but what else can we do on top of that? Can we automatically build, for example, Yara signatures based on this? Can we use multiple data sources to achieve consistency internally within this graph? So that's the kind of like where we're seeing AI and machine learning will take threat intelligence and help it become a little bit less manual and again, less dependent on manual expertise. What challenges are you facing with achieving some of the goals you've outlined? I'm assuming compute is always something that's in the back of your mind. What else would be a barrier to potentially achieving some of these successes or, or what are you tackling right now to reach your goals? That's a great question. Compute is a big one because on one hand, we have large amounts of data, but on the other hand, A, to process all of that in like a a deep learning style would take huge amounts of compute that would make, you know, our product run very inefficiently on our clients and an organization's machines. So usually that's not feasible, which is why one of our big focuses is to find efficiency in whatever techniques we're using so that the model can be lightweight and yet perform with similar degrees of precision and recall. Another big challenge we face is good labels or ground truth. Just because the spectrum of badness is so huge. Like on one end, you have these just adware things or grayware things that their whole goal might be like to show advertisements or cause pop-ups. And on the other end, you have like APT threats. So in this like wide spectrum, we have to find good labels for a large enough set for each particular category so that we can accurately classify uh, threats and inform users about that. That's been a very interesting problem too. Going back to the threat intelligence space, one really huge challenge is like that the field is continuously evolving, you know. A particular thing might be used for human-operated ransomware on day one, but on day 30, it's hosting some random adware or some software bundle or something. So within that span, even in shorter spans, the situation really changes, the intelligence you have really changes. So all of your machine learning systems have to be able to constantly getting the latest information, adapting to that. So those are some of the big challenges we face in this field that we're trying to work around. Bhavna, one of the questions we like to ask on the podcast is what from your your personal life, whether it's a hobby, whether it's something growing up as a kid, whether it's education or a previous job, do you bring forward into uh, your current job that, you know, could be considered maybe unorthodox? You teased very early on that maybe you play D&D. Is that <laughs> true? Yeah, but yeah, I play, yeah, video games all board games, I'm into all of that. You know, is that a passion for you? Do you find yourself bringing any, you know, game theory or, or the, the way that you would approach a D&D encounter into your actual, your day job? 
I think my biggest influence is books and language. I have been into books as far as I can remember. That was like my favorite birthday gift when I was a kid. I'd just drag my parents to the bookshop and buy a bunch of stuff. And the peculiar way in which humans use language and give meaning to it, to me, that is a source of endless fascination, which is why one of the favorite authors for me is Patrick Rothfuss and his book, Name of the Wind. I think like that book really talks about like, <laughs> it's, it's a fantasy book. So it kind of goes into like, if you know the name of a thing, then you have some control over it. It's a philosophical point, but also it says something about like language. And in my mind, somehow all of that comes together and that really leads me into how do machines interpret language? What does it mean for a machine to understand language? And when we're building all these natural language processing models, what exactly are we doing? And then what exactly are we missing from, you know, what human communication actually entails? So even though, which is why, like, I'm kind of always drawn into this uh, threat intelligence field because I'm like, this is really where the importance of language and communication becomes, you know, connected to security. So that's kind of this one thing for me that I, I really, really love. In fact, you know, one of the really ex- cute examples that's always struck, uh, stuck with me is when you do like a beginner course on natural language processing, you always kind of get this example. It's called Crash Blossoms. There, is, there was apparently a headline in a newspaper a long time ago where the headline said, violinist in Japan Airlines crash blossoms. And obviously the headline meant to say that this violinist who was involved in this air crash a while back is now doing well. But like when an NLP-based system is trying to process it, it is like, what is crash blossoms? And (laughs) I love that problem because it kind of emphasizes very clearly like this how machines are different from human beings and yet how we're trying to bring the two closer for our own benefit. I feel like one of the other unique points about language is just the evolution of slang. So I'll be curious to see how NLP processes and consumes slang because that is such a a cultural moment. It depends on the cohorts of people that you surround yourself with, the social context. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, You talked about slangs specifically where, you know, a meaning of a particular word or phrase can be different based on even, you know, the environment or the forum in which it is used. Certain terms, you know, for if you use it in an industry specific way will mean very different than, you know, in the general sense. And we come across that in security so much, right? Like we have all these actor names like Scary Panda or like Crawling Spider. And if you think of using like a traditional NLP model on all of this data, you're like, this is not going to make sense because you're talking about a specific entity, an actor, not an animal. Uh, So we do have those kind of challenges in our domain. And I love like diving deep into that. So I have another sort of random question. And I, and I did wonder, I was possibly laying the ground for this with my previous question about, you know, what about, what from your hobbies do you sort of bring forward into your work? Your avatar, your uh, photo in the Microsoft uh, gal in our sort of identity system is Megamind? Is that right? <laughs> that is absolutely right. I think that really ties into my sort of chaotic, neutral 
rogue character because Megamind is a really good example of that, right? Like supposed to be a villain, but is a hero, but also is a villain in some ways still. This was actually a prank. Uh, we had Microsoft month of give last month. So your teammates could donate some money and force you to change your profile picture. So, so that's what I got. <laughs> so did you choose Megamind or Megamind was thrust upon you? I chose Megamind. So I was like, okay, this is the most appropriate for me. Oh, wow. So, so you do resonate with the, with the Megamind character on some level. I do. Yeah, I think so. And also it's a really good movie that's kind of has not had its time in the limelight for a while. I don't know if I've seen it. I think my kids have seen it. And that's like, that's sort of why I know it. Because I think I've sort of had to approve them watching the movie, but I don't think I've seen it. It's good, is it? It is amazing. You should definitely watch it. It's a very cute movie. I think we have our homework, Nick. I haven't seen it either. Bhavna, before we let you go, is there anything you would like to plug? Any sort of organizations you're a part of? Any communities, groups, anything you'd like to say out there to aspiring uh, students uh, of machine learning who either want to get into the field or just want to get get better at, at machine learning? I would love to. So uh, the organization that I want to talk about is not associated with machine learning only. It's associated with security all up. So I am part of a group of women called Black Hoodies, and we are committed to increasing the participation of women in hard technical areas, which, you know, sometimes don't see as much participation from minorities. We are across the globe, across many companies group. The only, I think, criteria is like, you're a woman, whatever your definition of that is. And it's always free. We hold classes at multiple conferences across the world, which, uh, you know, will do things like reverse engineering, uh, Windows, ARM, web hacking, tools like Ghidra, all of that. All We have all of these trainings that are completely free. And now that, you know, we're in the pandemic, we're doing some of these remotely. So please follow us on uh, Twitter. And, you know, if you're interested in joining one of these trainings, it's super easy. And we really, really welcome anyone who wants to learn about this stuff. As you were talking, I searched Black Hoodie on on Bing and just got a thousand results for <laughs> buying a black hoodie. What's the what is the URL for the for the community group? I think I may have just accidentally purchased a black hoodie. <laughs> I've got I've got Amazon I've got Amazon what is it one one click buy. <laughs> I went a little too quick. I was like trying to pay attention to the the recording window for the podcast and then searching for what this was. Anyway. Uh, I hope it fits. <laughs> <laughs> so the website is blackhoodie.re and we talk about all of the latest events or uh, workshops that are happening there. Usually when Microsoft holds Blue Hat, we'll do a bunch of trainings at Blue Hat as well. I do the reverse engineering, beginner's reverse engineering for x86 as part of that. But right now we don't have in-person conferences but we're doing virtual stuff. That's great, Bhavna. I think one of our previous guests has also shared Black Hoodies, so thank you for highlighting it. It sounds like a great organization. And to our audience, please check it out. Uh, thank you, Bhavna, for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security 
or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.